Hey dudes, this is the big game. I'm Justin Hargett. I've said it before and I'm going to say it again, but if they hand out a trophy, then it's a big game. That's why we're returning to Arsenal's FA Cup campaign again here on the Big Game Podcast. This is the second and final time that we will discuss Arsenal's run in the FA Cup this season because it was the final of the FA Cup. Joining me on the show today to talk about Arsenal's stunning 4-0 victory over Aston Villa is returning guest Guy Yedwab. We talk about the Gunners' back-to-back FA Cup trophies, the return of the ever-impressive Theo Walcott. We also talk about whether or not we think Arsenal can use the FA Cup magic of the past two seasons to finally propel themselves to their first Premier League victory in over a decade next season. Also, stay tuned for more later in the week on The Big Game. We're going to cover the equally one-sided Copa del Rey final between Barcelona and Athletic Bilbao. Until then, I hope you enjoyed the conclusion to our FA Cup coverage here on The Big Game. Hey, Guy, welcome back to The Big Game. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be able to come back and uh, talk about uh, Gunners yet again. Yeah, and in the FA Cup, which is, you know, we've got a little bit of mojo here on the podcast. Every time you come on, Arsenal wins an FA Cup match. Uh, And, and, you know, I'm thinking we should just go all in, start a new Arsenal podcast where they win every single week. Yes, I I would enjoy (laughs) that. We may not be able to release that as regularly as we'd like, but I would certainly love to try. It could be like a five-minute podcast. I think that it just needs to be us together, you know, (laughs) on the internet, and that's all that matters. I certainly hope so, yeah. Well, so uh, we're here to talk about the final of the FA Cup, which features, once again, Arsenal taking on nearly relegated Aston Villa. Mm Mm-hmm. And... Boy, was it a thrashing. 4 nothing. Arsenal was in control the entire game. They just, their passes were zippy. The goals were remarkable. Uh, it was fantastic. But let's start uh, with where you watched the game this year. Because you and I uh, and Alex watched this game last year at Banter, a soccer bar in Brooklyn, with, you know, a whole ton of Arsenal supporters. And it was, you know, a great, I loved watching that game. And they, they came from behind to win 3-2. And we, like, shouted our heads off. So where did you take it in this year? Yeah, this was a little bit more of a of a muted and personal experience. It was in my living room uh, on the television, uh, just me and my uh, younger sibling who is in town for uh, to visit. Um, but it was great because it was just me, just me and the four zero scoreline. Uh, <laughs> it was really personal, uh, holy experience. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I was watching it. Yeah, I mean, this one it was definitely you know Arsenal had a title drought last season and so winning winning the FA Cup last year was kind of this huge relief for for fans you know nine years without one and now we're back repeat with the FA Cup two-time champions well now 12-time champions but back-to-back champions right now Um, and and I celebrated the victory the same way which was uh, hungover in a hotel room on my birthday uh, quietly watching the game at 9 30 on the west coast so but it was it was nice and uh it couldn't have been more fun to watch, I think. 
Yeah, and I think that fun, I think that underlines how different this year was from last year. I mean, both times it's, you know, Arsenal playing a team that's in the Premier League but further down in the table. But last year it was at the end of this long drought of not winning anything, a season that had been very, you know, rocky in terms of of, uh, injuries. And it winds up being, you know, a come from behind in extra time, 3-2 win. And the entire time I just remember feeling just abject terror and misery yeah. How are we going to not do this? How is this not going to work? This time, we come in uh, the last day of the Premier League season. Arsenal went in and thrashed a team. You know, there's a lot of great pieces that we saw in this game. And I just felt like I felt like it was ours to lose. And at no point did it look like we were going to lose it. So it was just, as an Arsenal fan, enjoyable and relaxing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It was, it was. I mean, last season, Arsenal got off to such a hot start and, you know, and they led the league for, you know, up until January, I think. And then they just kind of fell apart the injuries and just, you know, game after game, draws and losses and just kind of fell out of the title picture. But, you know, the FA Cup was a saving grace. But like you said, it was a real battle. And, you know, we thought they were going to lose it. And this year was a bit of the opposite. I mean, Arsenal started off slow in the league but then really turned it on in the second half and, and just stayed consistent. I remember there was a point where they what they won seven in a row or something like that uh, between February and March or so. And so it, it was nice to kind of come into this game at, as, a, as the overdog, as the, uh, as the favorite, and just really whoop Aston Villa at Wembley. Yeah, it, uh, there have certainly been other times that Arsenal has sh- has shown up expected as the favorite and then within a few minutes not looked like the favorite, which is always kind of concerning and terrifying. But in this game, they really came out ready to play and they had a plan and that plan kind of worked from start to finish. Yeah, and I think I want to start with Theo Walcott because he's, he's one, he started and finished the opening goal, uh, an amazing little play where he's running up the left, he receives a long cross um, and then, you know, feeds it to Monreal and the ball, you know, bounces around the box and comes back to him. And just a one-timer lightning strike with his left foot in between three Aston Villa players in the post to score the goal. And, and, you know, and that wasn't even the best chance he had. He should have had a goal, you know, maybe like 20 minutes before that where um, Shea Given just, you know, blanked him in front of the net. But, you know, earlier this season when we did the uh, second episode of the big game, the FA Cup against Hull, you know, Walk that was Walcott's, I think, first match in almost a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of his performance now that he's had about six months to kind of work with, you know, Sanchez and Cazorla and, you know, playing off the other Arsenal members? Yeah, I, I agree that this was definitely, from the Arsenal perspective, Theo Walcott's game. I thought what, what was interesting was um, the previous game before this was the last Premier League game of the season, and Arsenal uh, came in and won 4-1 over West Brom. And the win, that previous win, involved Walcott uh, getting a hat-trick, scoring three times. And the first goal that he scored, he ran into the stands and uh, hugged the Arsenal um, physician, f- physical staff. Like yeah. he, he celebrated with the people. So it, we, up until I feel last weekend, didn't get to see a fit Theo Walcott for oh, basically a year uh, since he went down, you know, in that game against Spurs. Um, and so during that time, Walcott has always insisted that he's a central striker. Um, and 
up until he went out on injury, he was always being played as a as a winger. Mm-hmm. So not only did he come back from injury, but he came back as a striker in place of Giroud. And, you know, Arsenal fans have always said, we don't have a striker, we don't have someone up top who really commands. And Theo Walcott, you know, with that hat-trick last game and this commanding performance is really set to say, hey, I am Arsenal's striker now. Uh, in a way that I don't think we've ever really seen from him before. I absolutely uh, agree. And I and I don't even feel like he was at for full at full strength. I mean that that you know the couple misses that he had in this game, and I think he had a couple you know sweet opportunities in the West Brom game as well. That you know I think it come from being a little bit rusty in terms of the decision making and the reflexes from having been benched for so long. Um, but he is very fast and he's terrifying to defenders and he really adds something that Arsenal hasn't had um, and fits in really well into everything Arsenal has had uh, with the, the their lineup. Yeah, what I like about the way that he's playing right now, unlike Giroud, who is kind of always there to receive the ball and take the shot and, you know, he had some stretches this season where that really worked for him. But a lot of times when Giroud gets the ball, it... I don't know, it just kind of peters out or, you know, he starts to starfish on the grass or whatever. And and there was something about the way that Walcott plays with Sanchez. And these, I, mean, I think they're very similar sort of players in that they're, they kind of have this ability to roam and find the ball and be there at the right opportunity. And I like that, that if they both play at the same time, you kind of have this, you know, this very dangerous attacker who could be coming from any angle and is very, very quick and very, very good on the ball. And I just I like the way that looks better than Giroud just holding up and trying to lay off for other people or to turn mm-hmm. and shoot. Is that kind of how you saw him in this game? Yeah, I think, I think that that's kind of the story of this new Arsenal attacking line that's been built up over the last two seasons because what you just reminded me of is right before the first goal, I wrote a note in my journal that said, oh, I've just noticed that Walcott has switched with Sanchez and is now wide out left. There wasn't a substitution or anything. It was just, you know, in the middle of the run of play, he's now switched, he's left, and Sanchez is at center. And as I finished writing that was the opening goal. Mm -hmm. And so what that made me realize is that Theo Walcott, Alexis Sanchez, and Aaron Ramsey now have a rhythm between the three of them that... Ramsey could be up front, Walcott could be up front, Sanchez could be up front, or any of them can be at the wings. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between all three of them and Olivier Giroud, is that Giroud is a target forward. He sits up front and he waits for service and he poaches and makes things happen. And what I want to compare that to is, we've been talking about Arsenal, but um, to talk about Aston Villa for just a second... This is the only second you're allowed to talk about Aston Villa. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. We're going to get to them. We're going to get to them. Yeah. Uh, is Christian Benteke is their target forward. And their strategy is built around getting the ball to Benteke. He's an amazing striker. Mm-hmm. But what happened was Arsenal knew that Benteke is a fantastic striker. They shut down Benteke and there were just no other options. So... You know, whereas when it came to trying to shut down Arsenal, yeah, you can put two guys on Walcott, but then you're going to leave Sanchez open or you're going to leave Ramsey open or you're going to leave Ozil open. And any one of those are equally as dangerous. And you have the fact that they're now all, you know, making short passes and switching endlessly who's standing where. That all adds up to a defense that 
is very confused in the face of an Arsenal attack. <laughs> well, yeah, so let's jump over to Aston Villa then for a second. You know, <laughs> I, I had the exact same note that Benteke is, is the lethal member of the Aston Villa offense, and that's about it. And Murtisacker just nullified him. And not only did he nullify him, you know, as a defender, uh, he nullified him on the other side of the field when he scored that header, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to basically totally cement the game in like the 60th minute. But it didn't seem like there were any other Aston Villa players that that could compete against this Arsenal midfield and defense. They mm-hmm. didn't have pace. They looked just totally anemic when they did get a counterattack. Um, there was a point maybe somewhere in the second half where it might have been 3-0 at that point, but it, maybe it was 2-0 and they kind of had a, you know, they still had a little bit of a lifeline to get back in it if they were lucky. And, you know, they had the ball and they were pressing forward and they were moving and they were making passes. But then they just kept making passes and Arsenal got organized and just beat them back. And the next thing you know, there's a long ball back to, you know, a defender and then, uh, Arsenal turns it over with their high pressure and Walcott gets a shot on goal. It, it's so there was just nothing that Aston Villa was doing that was working in this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there were a, a couple aspects of that. One is, you know, to for in Benteke's defense, it wasn't just Mertesacker who was shutting him down. Um, because of how sparse the, the Aston Villa front line is, almost every time someone shot a long ball at Benteke, Murdersacker was on top of him on one side, Kashelny was on top of him on the other side, and even with those two, Chesney, the go- the Arsenal goalkeeper would run out of goal to punch the ball away. Yeah. So it was almost like he had three Arsenal defenders physically standing on top of him at any point that he might even get close to the ball. Yeah. And and the reason for that was that they were sitting a lot back. There were, the other person who I was paying attention to is um uh, Aston Villa's young winger Jack Grealish, um, who I am a big fan of, um, partly because he wears his socks down as an invitation for people to kick him in the shins, uh, <laughs> just because he's like, yeah, you're gonna try and tackle me because I'm fast, so yeah, kick me in the shins. Um, but there were a couple times where I saw him, you know, really running with pace, you know, breaking down the left hand side, and then you know, Bellerin, uh, you know, on the the right back, kind of putting pressure on him. And then he had no one within 20 yards of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had, you know, maybe as, you know, Benteke 15, 20 yards away, and that was it. Um, and so because they weren't pushing forward, um, their their attacks were always going to, to peter out because there just weren't options. You know, you compare that with Arsenal where no matter who's charging down the center or down the right, there's at least four other Arsenal people ready to get the ball if they can't, you know, keep moving forward and they can just keep circulating and circulating. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that is more of a, an indictment on Aston Villa's, you know, the quality of their players? Or is that on Tim Sherwood's preparation and planning for the game? Um, I think it's it's I think there's a, a little bit uh, in terms of both because I think the the strategy that Aston Villa was trying to do was to pack a lot of defense in the back and then hope to hit them on the break you know get a long ball to Benteke or have J- Jack Grealish break you know very quickly down the side and I think that that assumes a much more um, stable defensive line than actually showed up for Aston Villa. <laughs> One of the things that I noticed is at about minute 
eight, I wrote down a note that said uh, Okore, uh, one of Aston Villa's center backs. I said, it looks like he's about to come off with an injury. I mean, he he already on his face looked like he was in pain and he was panting. And when I looked up, it was because this was his first game back from injury. Oh, wow. And Richardson, the left back, Kieran Richardson, was also his first game back from injury. And Ron Vlar has also been shaking off some serious injuries. So I wonder if maybe some of them were rushed back when they weren't necessarily fully fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the decision-making, the, the rhythm of them, you know, wasn't necessarily great. The number of times that on a set piece, Koscielny got a free header or, you know, Murdersacker got the free header for the goal. You know, it, it just seemed like they weren't able to keep step with all of the, the pace uh, that Arsenal was putting. So I don't know how much of that is, uh, you know, Tim Sherwood p- picking the wrong game plan and how much of it is the players not being able to keep up. But it didn't it didn't look like they were able to put the pieces together in that effective way. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the the defense, you know, they put up a fight for about 40 minutes, but they just couldn't contain. And I think part of the problem with not being able to contain meant that they couldn't get turnovers. And if they couldn't get the turnovers, then they couldn't get out on the break. And when they did get on the break, like you said, one guy, you know, Grelish is, is all the way down on the left wing uh, and, and no one's around him. So I, I think it's probably going to come down to the quality of the players a little bit more just because Tim Sherwood was able to take Tottenham last season and kind of take an underperforming but very talented side and kind of, you know, get them back up the rungs of, of the Premier League table. And so it's he's probably going to have a, a big uphill battle this offseason to convince Aston Villa's owners to sign a few quality players to, to bring in and, and make this midfield a little bit stronger, their wingers a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the hallmarks of the early season Aston Villa was actually solidity in the defense, and I think they have the pieces there for that, but they don't necessarily have, um, you know, the pieces in attack. And I, you can imagine how terrible of a position they'd be in if it wasn't for Benteke. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm sure part of their, um, you know, part of their slide towards relegation was, you know, had to do with the fact that Benteke can't win everything all the time. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things I, I think is is a you know a, a positive sign for Aston Villa is you know I I think that when Tim Sherwood took over as manager they did start performing much better and if if he is given the faith to bring in the pieces I, I don't necessarily think that this is a sign that Tim Sherwood as a manager won't work out. Um, it's also worth remembering you know in preparation I was wondering okay well how do I compare Aston Villa's performance to the previous season you know so they finished the league this uh, year in 17th place and since 2011 they've been in 15th or 16th place every season mm-hmm. uh, it's only in 2010 that they were in ninth place and 2009 that they you know finished in sixth place so you know I, I think that they're very much where they usually are in terms of their performance. So the question is, you know, will they give the faith into Tim Sherwood to bring in some pieces or will they be happy with this team that they currently have? Yeah, that's a great point. I want to talk a little bit more about Aston Villa, but I want to talk about them in context of Arsenal's second goal, which was Sanchez's wonder strike from about 25 yards. Uh, You know, there's a bit of controversy in that, you know, Brad Guzan has kind of been the starting keeper for Aston Villa for almost the entire season. But now Shea Given has been on a bit of a run himself, being afforded some playing time. Uh, And Shea Given got the start here for Aston Villa in net. 
And he looked great in that first half. You know, he, he stopped uh, a Kachelny header real early in the game. He stopped um, one of Walcott's early strikes. But there was something, I think there was something telling about this second goal. Um, and it was, a, it was a great, great strike from Sanchez. But do you think Brad Guzan should have been in this game for Aston Villa? Do you think that would have helped them a little bit in the back? Or is Sanchez just too good? Yeah, I think focusing on that absolutely staggering wonder strike, I was less, I, I felt that that was less a problem of Shea Given and more that's a, that's a symptom of the, back, of the back line that showed up, which is that they were stopping him from running or from passing, but they, but they weren't pressing him hard on the ball, which gave him the time to say, you know what, I'm 38 or 40 yards out, I can just kick it at the goal. No, no one's going to stop me from taking what was basically almost like a set piece. You know, he had the time to weight it and kick it as though it was a free kick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where Shea Given was completely caught out. I wonder if in terms of given in, in terms of organizing the back line on things like the set pieces, whether Brad Guzan just having played more and worked more with that back line could have helped them out. But I thought Given had a very, uh, you know, standout performance. Um, I, I thought that, you know, he, he was being left exposed right, left, right and center, and it could have been, you know, six zero. Uh, <laughs> and you know, he, he, he didn't look like the reserve goalkeeper has been trotted out in the, in the final, the way that, uh, Arsenal's reserve goalkeeper Fabianski looked last year. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. looked like he belonged, you know, in the back line, uh, and was the better of the two goalkeepers, I thought. Well, so which goal did you like more, the Sanchez goal or uh, Lionel Messi's impression of, you know, a 1950s uh, Brazilian forward in the Copa del Rey where he dribbles around three players and then another player and then just like a, a beauty of a strike into the to the bottom right corner of the net? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that between the two, I would actually take Leo Messi's because, <laughs> you know, because Leo Messi's goal, someone was trying to stop him from taking it, whereas I feel like Alexis Sanchez's goal has the benefit of the fact that no one's pressing him, so he just kicks the ball. Not to take anything away from the skill and talent required to actually <laughs> sink that, but it's it's uh, he has time and space to a degree that's really not <laughs> really not acceptable from that defense. Let's let's look ahead to uh, let's not look ahead to Aston Villa season next year. We I think we know. They're aiming for 15th place. Let's see if they get it. Let's see if Tim Sherwood can, you know, pull them together. But let's talk about Arsenal and their challenge for the Premier League title. You know, you're mentioning uh, Coquelin has been amazing in a defensive midfield role this season, like a, a real revelation. And I think in the same way, Bellerin has been a revelation on the right, um, at the right back position. Do you think that with these improvements and with a healthy Theo Walcott, and maybe if they sign, you know, a couple of, backups if, if Arsenal is willing to spend the money this offseason do you think they can really challenge Chelsea and Man City for the Premier League title and do you think they're going to stay relevant in the Champions League this season so in terms of um, being relevant in the Champions League I feel like they still have a significant a significant growth partly just because they don't necessarily have the depth of experienced players that they would need to take on say a Barcelona 
um, because, you know, Barcelona can field 11 quality players from their bench that could win a Champions League game. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Arsenal is still very far from that. I think they do have the capability to certainly compete with Manchester City. Um, I I don't know if they're going to be quite at that place to, to knock Chelsea off the title, but we'll see what Chelsea looks like next year. Um, but I think they do have; they will be significant contenders for the title. Um, I think the emergence of having finally a defensive midfielder in uh, Kalkalan is very important for them. I think they still need one more um, because, given Arsenal's injury history, they're not going to have Kalkalan for an entire season. I can almost <laughs> guarantee it. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of the front half of the field, it's finally at a point where they have enough. They have enough weapons in their, for lack of a better term, arsenal, um, <laughs> and, and, and enough flexibility. I think it's the flexibility that's really improved in the attack line that, all right, if there's no Sanchez, then it's, you know, um, Cazola, Walcott, and Ramsey. And if it's not Cazola, then it's, you know, Urzel, Walcott, and Giroud. You know, they, they could play around with those pieces and still have some significant ones. Um, a goalkeeper who's more reliable would be nice. Um, a defensive midfielder is probably going to be a must. Um, and yeah, I think I think that would be the start of being able to really challenge. Yeah, I think you're right. That I mean, I, I didn't mind. I was kind of nice to see Chesney in this game. And, you know, I went back and I listened to our last podcast, and that was one where I had said the opposite, which was, oh, it's so great that Chesney's not in this game uh, and that Espina got the start. And, you know, from that point on, Espina pretty much played the rest of the season for Arsenal. Yeah, I, I wasn't so impressed by his decision-making. I mean, he came out... It, um, partly, it's difficult to assess because he was not tested. No, I didn't. I don't think he had a significant shot towards his goal. So he focused on running out and punching those balls out of the air so that, um, so that Benteke couldn't even get them to his head. Um, but they made me very nervous. I, I really think that... If one of those punches hadn't gone the way he expected, it, he would have been very exposed. And I, I, I feel like part of that was almost a, a hunger for him to demonstrate something during the game. Yeah. Uh, and it's also partly because in the previous FA Cup final, I don't know if you remember, but it's seared in my memory when Lucas Fabianski, who's the goalkeeper in that one, came out of the goal and all the way to the edge of the box and then slid for the ball at the person's foot, completely missed it, and just left the winger with an open <laughs> goal. And I don't remember how that didn't turn into a goal, but I remember just screaming at the television, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. I'm hopeful that Arsenal will sign a little bit more depth on, on the defensive side. But you never you never know with these guys. Yeah, you never know. I was really... I. They really started to get my heart going with these rumors about Arturo Vidal and the fact that Alexis Sanchez was sweet talking him, and then <laughs> Alexis Sanchez hung the Chilean, you know, the Chilean flag in front of the FA Cup, and I was like, oh my God, maybe it's going to happen. And Wenger's like, we don't need any more midfielders. Like, oh. <laughs> it, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, which of the folks that they have on loan or, or, um, you know, ha- haven't been playing as much. Uh, are able to get field time and also how some of the other long-term injuries fit in with the squad. Um, you know, Jack Wilshire came off the bench in the last two games and looked very, you know, very uh, convincing. Um, but Matthew Flamini and uh, Mikel Arteta, who used to do that defensive midfielding job, 
got who knows how they fit into this squad now. We yeah, or Thomas Rizicki for that matter. Oh, I, 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 I really hope there's a place for him because I, <laughs> I still think he brings something that no one else brings to the team. But, uh, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting pieces that it, we'll have to wait through the summer to see how they fit together. All right, last question. FA Cup 3 Pete, is it going to happen? I mean, we will see how seriously the other premier, uh, you know, top, you know, top six Premier League teams take it next season. Um, I'm, st- you know, the nature, the be- the nature of the beast is that, you know, this is an FA Cup where, you know, Chelsea goes down early and Manchester City goes down early and Southampton doesn't advance very far. And so he, Arsenal does wind up, you know, last time with Hull and this time with Aston Villa. If they are uh, against a similarly strength team as Aston Villa or Hull, I would absolutely expect them to get a three-peat. But, you know, if someone young and hungry like a Crystal Palace or a Southampton actually makes it to the FA Cup final, I wouldn't necessarily be so sure. All right. Well, you know, I guess I was wondering too, like, would this have meant more if it had been Arsenal versus Tottenham or Arsenal versus Manchester United? Do you think we just would have been gotten up for the game a lot more and been more excited for that sort of uh, big FA Cup final? Do you think it was a bit of a letdown that it was Arsenal versus Aston Villa? Um, I didn't necessarily feel it was a letdown because Aston Villa has had some better performances of late. I think once Aston Villa showed up and I realized that they weren't going to be bringing, you know, the the best of the Aston Villa performances we've seen, I think that's when it felt a little bit more of a letdown. But I think, you know, Tim Sherwood's ambition and, and some of the way he's pumped up those players made me think, oh, this could be this could be an interesting uh, matchup. Um if it was Arsenal Spurs, you bet <laughs> it would have been the biggest thing in soccer for months. But um, but I, I was still excited. I still felt like this is a, a clear statement of what we're going to see next season. Um, and yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting. I concur. Three Pete, here we come. Three Pete, here we come. So long as we make sure that we schedule to do a podcast together <laughs> every single week next year. <laughs> All right, guy. Well, thank you for coming back on The Big Game, and I'm sure we will talk to you soon. Great. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Big Game. If you haven't yet, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review if you like what you hear, and check out our new website, biggamepod.com, where you can stream all of our past episodes. Follow The Big Game on Twitter at biggamepod. Like I said at the top of the show, stay tuned for more later in the week on The Big Game. Next week, we'll have Champions League coverage, the NBA playoffs, and the Stanley Cup.